Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. Okay, this week we are focusing on that excellent 70s soft rock band Firefall with a special two-parter. So quick background, if you don't remember. Firefall came together as a bit of a super group in the mid-70s. Guys were coming from bands like the Flying Burrito Brothers and Spirit and the Birds. And they actually had half a dozen pretty big hits there in the second half of the 70s. This is probably the biggest one right here. You Are the Woman. It reached number nine in 1976. At the dawn of the 80s, the band broke up for the usual reasons that they all do. Drugs, egos, uh, falling success, that kind of thing. But they've come together and broken up off and on throughout the years. However, now, Firefall is back at it and is a touring entity with some of the original members. So first up in this interview, we talked to multi-instrumentalist David Muse. He plays the saxophone, among other things. He's still in the band, has been all along. He's also sort of venturing out on his own sort of uh, smooth jazz career as well. So we get to hear from him and what life is like within the band now. And then we hear from Rick Roberts. And Rick was the frontman of the band back in the day. Frontman, lead singer, key songwriter. He was really the main guy. He's not with the band anymore, but there doesn't appear to be any kind of animosity or anything like that. When I thought to reach out to Firefall, this was also based on a listener request. You guys send me requests, and sometimes there are people that I have on my list as well and just hadn't gotten around to yet. But Andy Solemn sent me Firefall, and I thought, great, I've been meaning to do that too. So I reached out to the band, and I reached out to Rick, not knowing who I would hear back from, and I heard back from both. So it's a win-win. They both have had their health setbacks, but they're both survivors, and they're really great guys. Rick is doing a really interesting uh, solo thing now that you'll hear him talk about. Anyway, so you're going to hear from David, and then you're going to hear from Rick. David called me from his home in Florida. Rick called me from his home about 45 minutes up the road in Longmont, Colorado. I, I kick these things off often how I um, how I discover the people I'm talking to, and I was really late into the game for Firefall. And it's interesting because I discovered Firefall through Shazam, that app for people's phones. I was somewhere I don't remember where. This was probably four or five years ago, and my and I was hearing a song that I knew I knew and I couldn't place who it was. And if you have this app Shazam on your phone, you can turn it on. And the app will listen to whatever the song is and tell you oh, yeah. who it is. Yeah, yeah, right? now I know what you're talking about. Yeah, okay. I don't ever use it, but now I know what you're talking about. Yeah. yeah. So it came back, and I don't remember which song it was, but it came back Firefall, and I was like, that's who Firefall is. I, hadn't, I had never connected <laughs> the dots that all these songs I knew were by the same band. You know what I mean? And so right. since then, I've just become a huge fan. Now, as I had mentioned, me being in Denver and you guys basically forming in Boulder, you're going to have to fill me in on what the music scene in Boulder was like in the 70s because bands aren't really making it unless you're in New York or L.A. anymore. You know what I mean? Well, yeah, you know, that was a particular time when a lot of people were migrating from L.A. And uh, my friend Rick Roberts, who I grew up with, you know, he's the one that kind of basically started Firefall and I think the first guy he got a hold of was Jock, you know, but the mm. music scene the music scene in those days was wide open. A lot of people were moving to Colorado, you know, and things were just, you know, coming around. I mean, even though we were based in Colorado, we got our deals through New York, you know, uh, okay. I mean, 
Milt Levy was our manager, and basically before I came in the band, Chris Hillman was out on the road, and he got sick or something. So anyway, I called up the Firefall guys, and they went to New York and played, and uh, that's when Atlantic saw the band for the first time. And Okay. That ended up being our signing point at that point. And I came in... Huh. I came in right after they signed, you know, they had signed the deal for the first record, and then I actually joined the band right before the first record. Right, so. okay, that's right. So you yeah. could have, because I, I find that I talk to a lot of artists who were sort of regional successes, especially back in the 70s, like guys who made a living playing all the bars in Cleveland or in Philly or something like that. So, mm-hmm. you know, me being here and being much younger and not really – knowing what that scene would have been like, Boulder is just, you know, 45 minutes up the road. Could you have made a living doing nothing but just playing around Boulder, all you know, every uh, night or every weekend? Not necessarily around Boulder, but even in those days. I mean, because you have to understand, you know, we weren't just the guys in the band. Ricky had been in the Flying Wheel Brothers, you know, Marketplace Spirit, you know, so and Michael played in the Birds. So it was something besides just a local band, but Got it, you know, true. the band started first playing, you know, there were several clubs, there was a Good Earth and uh, Kalagi's up on the hill and places mm-hmm. like that. But, you know, we wouldn't have been able to make a living just in Boulder, but playing around Colorado, I'm sure. Yeah, sure. okay, happen, okay. You know? Yeah. yeah, I forget about that. It's not like you guys were a bunch of rookies. I mean, you had <laughs> all had a bunch of, you know, experience under your belt and sort of chose to come together for this project. What was it about Firefall and those guys that made you feel like you were onto something? I myself was living in Atlanta, and I was playing in a club band. I was playing in the underground Atlanta in the house band at a place called Scarlet O'Hare's, and I got a call from Ricky. And Ricky and I grew up, and he said, man, you, you need to come out here and check this out. You know, we got something going on. So I did, and I showed up in Boulder, and at that particular time, Ricky was out with Chris Hillman, so I joined a couple mm-hmm. local bands in town, uh, a little thing called Beggar's Opera. Anyway, make a long story short, uh, Ricky showed back up in town, came in with Chris Hillman, and, and I started playing with Chris for a little bit, and then ended up doing the Firefall thing, but, mm. you know, it was, a, it was just a matter of, you know, people who knew each other, you know, uh, yeah. Ricky, Ricky came into town, they were looking for drummer, they had another drummer in town, but... Then Michael Clark showed up on the scene, so Michael in the band, and then Mark. I mean, it was just a, a natural progression of people, you know, mm-hmm. and Ricky had the good songs, and uh, I guess in the beginning it was just a matter of trying to put together a project, and then, you know, when we, when it all came together, it was like, you know, everybody brought something to the table. It was just one of those things in in the industry, you know, in those days you had to have kind of like a bicycle wheel. you got to not have the wheel. you got to have all the spokes, and they got to be tuned, otherwise it don't run. And yeah, it just, right. It just didn't seem to work out that way for us, you know, between Ricky songs and everybody brought their particular style to the band, and, you know, and then the record company came together. So, you know, it's, there's a lot involved, but it, there's uh, certain elements that came together. We were truly a band because everybody brought something to the table, you know, so yeah. That, yeah. that's what I liked about it, you know. So Good. Okay. Okay. Um, so when was it, I mean, did you go on a national tour and where did you, uh, did you all have to like relocate to LA and who, what were those no, first no, few days no, no. like? I mean, when you're kind of like, well, you know, actually, I can't believe yeah. I'm in a band and it's successful. 
Well, you know, we, we went down in the winter to do the first album at Criterion in Miami. And uh, mm. when we finished the, the album, you know, we all listened to it, and we go, damn, this is pretty damn good. <laughs> <laughs> sure is. <laughs> so, maybe, so, so maybe we got something here, you know. So yeah. actually, the, the album came out, and it started charting right away, and they did a big push on it. And, uh, you know, you started hearing it in the college dorms and on the radio, and just here and there, and we go, well, shit, we got something going on here. And so yeah. actually, our, our management put together a, a club tour, which we did for about a month. And after that, we hooked up with Fleetwood Mac and the original, not the original, the original, non-original Fleetwood right, Mac. Right, right, yeah. So we, we went from playing clubs to playing places like the Spectrum and all these, you know, 10,000, 15,000 seat halls. And yeah. So that helped out a bit, you know. So, but, Yeah, uh, no kidding. It just kind of all snowballed from there, and uh, we did right well for a while. Yeah. You know, so. What's your What's that like on a person? You're a regular guy who sort of, you know, some buddies talk you into moving to Boulder and joining their band. And granted, you all have some history. They've got some history with some bands that of some notoriety. And you're playing bars around Boulder, and then the next minute you're opening for Fleetwood Mac, who are the at that time the biggest band in the world. And uh, you know, yeah, well, that 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 was quite a eye opener. Even before Fleetwood Mac, we uh, we did some dates with we did a lot of dates with the Doobie Brothers in those days. And I've yeah. been playing I've been playing in Underground Atlanta for years, you know, and we did a lot of Doobie Brother covers and stuff. And so, like the first night we're out with the Doobie Brothers, you know, they have us come out and sing the encore and listen to the music with them. And that's when I realized <laughs> that's when I realized to going. Man, I'm not here with the real guys. This is pretty cool, you know. <laughs> uh, love it. You know, so, yeah. So you know that that kind of thing, you know. Wow, wow. How did your life change? I mean, so one of the things we talk about on here as sensitively as possible is kind of the money or the business side of things. I'm guessing you go from being a fairly low-level sort of struggling artist trying to make you know pay your bills or whatever, to now being a a, in a big band with a lot of hits, touring the world. Uh, what were some of the things that you, you know, did you go out buy the car you always wanted? The, you know, what did you do? You have to understand, you know, I mean, uh, Ricky and some of the guys have been in bands before, you know, but as far uh, as the money, money concerned, I mean, you have to understand when we were, we were young. It wasn't, they never really got into the mega money. Mega money came from the publishing and stuff, which Ricky, uh, Ricky wrote most of the songs. And we really didn't have a sharing situation in those days, you know, where we had a Rangers royalty or something like that. Yeah. So okay. Ricky and Larry ended up with the big money, and we were making money off the shows. And, hey, at that point in time, you know, you're 30-something years old, have no bills, no tie-downs. And so it didn't take <laughs> much money. Didn't take much money to go. Hey, this is working, you know. So, yeah, yeah. But yeah, you know, we and we went from we didn't really do too many headline tours. We did a lot. Of, I mean, even like with first time Marshall Tucker played uh, Madison Square, we did that show with them, and it was a co headline show. But as far as actual tours, where we were out playing the big halls and us headlining and taking our production and all that stuff with us, that only happened a few times, you know. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Okay. Interesting. By the way, one more question about uh, sort of coming up through the ranks. Did I read, are you from Tarpon Springs, Florida? No, I'm not. I'm from Dunedin, Florida, so I don't know what Tarpon Springs got in there. Oh, I I read that somewhere. 
Well, you know, I, when I first moved to Florida, my family moved to Tuscan Springs, but I basically grew up in a little town called Dunedin, Florida. Okay. Which is, which is where Rick Roberts is from, too. Rick and I grew up together here in the Got it. Clearwater. It's the Tampa Bay area, Clearwater, Dunedin, Tuscan Springs. Okay. The reason I ask, I had uh, Bertie Higgins on here a year and a half ago or something, and he's from Tarpon Springs. I thought, what are the chances that two guys, two big big time musicians, would come from the same little Florida town? Well, it's kind of funny when the first, I mean, hell, I'm going back a ways, but I was in first first grade in Tarpon Springs, and uh, Bertie's family lived right down the street from us, and his brother, (laughs) my my brother, used to play together. You know, really? Yeah. Wow. You know, Man, stuff small, like that is fascinating. Water. Yeah, no kidding. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So I got to ask you about uh, some of the people you worked with. And Tom Dowd uh, produced your third album, Milan, and mm-hmm. uh, he's a magical character. He's behind. He's been behind the boards on some of the biggest, best, most important music in history. They made a really great documentary on on him about 10 years ago, 15 years ago, that was so good. But I'm wondering if, what was the magic of Tom Dowd? Can you sort of define it or clarify it for us? Why do we hear his name? What's so special? Tom Tom was a very interesting character. I mean, first of all, he was just a super nice guy, you know. Mm -hmm. And what I liked about him, he was straight shooting. He didn't put up with any bullshit, you know, which in those days could be a lot of bullshit. (laughs) I can imagine. But, you know, he he was a very smart guy, too. You know, he was a a nuclear engineer before he got into Yeah, I mean, the guy's got a – he goes back a long ways. And I don't know if you know it or not, he's the first one that came up with splicing tape in those days, you know. Really? That makes sense. You know, I mean, these days, people don't even know what spice and tape was, so we have to right. figure where well, you can cut and copy and paste and put that here. But in the days of tape, you know, you had to be very on, and it was you had to have a very good ear to know right where to cut it and splice it. So if you're not, you got one chance, and if you're screwed, you have to screw it up. You know? so, yeah, yeah. But uh, he's the one that did that. He, he was just a great guy to work with. I mean, very knowledgeable, and, uh, you know, he was, on, he was on top of this, and I liked Tom a whole lot. Good, so. okay. Yeah, I've just always wondered what, what was the key ingredient that sort of separated him from everyone else, why we hear that name so much. He well, seems like a great he, guy. He was in the thick and thin, too, and he was there in the beginning of Atlantic Records. So, I mean, you know, he had a lot of opportunities. But yeah, true, true. It's just it's just like music in the music industry. You know, you, how do you get ahead in the music industry? And I go, well, listen, you got to have a desire. you got to have a certain amount of chops, and then you got to be in the right place at the right time and ready to perform because you get uh-huh. one, or two, one or two chances, and that's about it, you know? So, yeah, yeah. So. Very true. So, okay. So Firefall, you know, you guys continue on into the 80s, and I grew up in the 80s, so I love the synthesizers and the saxophones and, the, you know, all that kind of sound, but it didn't do any favors for some bands who really came up with from the softer side of the 70s, you know? Like, if you ever listen to John Denver's 80s music, it's almost unlistenable. But you guys were trying it. You guys were hanging in there. You're adding some... 80s flourishes to the music, but you're still there's still good songs in there. How oh, did the yeah. 80s and the and the advent of kind of new wave and the change of technology? Were you seeing that kind of? Would, did you feel like what you're what you were putting out there was getting diminished? Like you guys, or were you still feeling like, hey, we're on top of it, we're doing great? 
Well, you know, when actually the original band broke up in 81 started to fall apart, but a lot True. of it was due not so much to technology, the fact that disco came along and, you know, all yeah. of a sudden disco was the big thing and the kind of music we were playing and, you know, just classic rock kind of took a back seat. And record companies were really, you know, they, you know, they're business. They don't where the money's at, you know, so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> good point. That's the way they went, you know, and so that was between disco coming in and, uh, you know, things kind of taking a little different turn and, you know, then different people getting different ideas, the band started breaking up and uh, that, you know. So. Yeah, I uh, I think I, I was reading, and it was honestly probably on Wikipedia or something like that, just about many changes and this guy left and, and then this guy left. It sounds like, if I didn't know anybody, it sounds like there was kind of a lot of drama behind the scenes were were firefall well it sounds that way but it sounds like i mean i know everyone came together as friends but then it sounded like the band had to deal with a lot of drama was that am i misreading it no you're not misreading it at all i mean you know first of all you have to understand the first album we went in we had nothing to lose so everybody was relaxed relaxed and uh, you know we'd been playing the songs for a while so the arrangements were there and uh, it was just all sounding good and then after the first album came out and the success then you know then all the business bullshit started coming in yeah people People started getting whispers in the ears, and then the well, mm-hmm. the publishing companies were going, "Well, you got to have this many songs on the album, you know." So there, there are things that came into it, and, and besides the uh, the drugs and all of that stuff yeah. that was prevailing in those days, you know, and so yeah, people got a little crazy. I, the way I explain it, you know, it's like a, we were successful despite ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> It seemed like every time we did something, we were turning around to ruin our career, but we kept going. <laughs> Good. He made it anyway. Oh, that's great. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Now, um, you, though, I, I think, so I've been listening to um, your solo stuff and kind of reading up on you and everything like that. It, you did get the one song, Dreamers, on, uh, I'm blanking on the name of the album. It was one of the 80s albums. Yeah, um, Always reaching for the sun I know I'm not the only one My life is a song in the air And even though the things I hear Seem my blossoms and my fears I know that the night will soon be here Then lost in clouds and turns songwriter uh, or no, you write well, different you know, kinds of music what's your style well i like all kinds of stuff it's good music it's good music but i've True. you know i uh i'm not a country western guy but even though we had elements of that in the band i mean that, that was the whole thing what i brought to the band was just some different flavors and different instruments you know otherwise it would yeah. be just 
a guitar band, you know, which is fine. Many guitar bands have made it, you know, but I mean, if you listen to the stuff that we did, I mean, everybody brought something, and what I brought was some different flavors, just different instruments sure. and, and and things. And uh, but no, I, I like all kinds of music, you know. And I'm, currently, I've been last year I had a new CD out at the uh, Smooth Jazz CD instrumental. Nice. For, you know, okay. What I, did was I took a bunch of of our Firefall hits and turned yeah. into smooth jazz tracks. So that gets Firefall revisited. put in that smooth jazz door. I mean, I love playing rock and roll and pop, and uh, you know, I'll continue to do that. But I, uh, you know, I'm an instrumentalist myself. I'm not sure. I'm not a big time vocalist, and uh, the kind of stuff I will write. And, you know, you can tell from Dreamers it was a little different departure. You know, from right, right, the kind of stuff we were doing in those days. But uh, yeah, and uh, so that's just me. The whole thing that it was, you know, I mean, not only myself, but Jock and everybody else. We were all writers, but. Ricky and Larry were the main writers, and Ricky had the most hits and stuff. So basically, yeah. that's where, while the band was together, that's where we pretty much put most of our energy into. You know, sure. So. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I was curious. Now, when the band came to an end, what did you do? Because I think, if again, if I remember right, or if I read correctly, I think your intention was to kind of retire from performing, right? No. No, I uh, basically I moved to L.A. for a while, and I tried to get into doing film scores. I was very oh. interested in doing, doing film scores for movies and stuff, but very, very, you know, rock and roll's clicky. I mean, the movie industry is even more clicky, you know. Yeah, I believe like, it. And in those days, getting have some success, it was very hard to to put yourself in a position. And plus, L.A. is is a town where. It's me, 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 me. If you're not out there yeah. promoting yourself every day, you don't get anything done. And I just, that's not my personality. So right, right. Basically, I left L.A. and I went, came back to Florida and I played around here for a while and then I ended up joining the Marshall Parker Band and played with them yep. for about, about eight, seven, eight years, something like that. I never dreamed it would come down to this. Shot for the moon Somehow we miss Instead of counting our blessing We counted our faults Now you so ready To call the whole thing off 
That's what I was going to ask you about. I mean, that's another, you know, you're now another contributing member of a huge band from the era. I think you came about into the band because you guys had all toured together. Is that right? Well, yeah. You know, I mean, uh, Tucker and Firefall, just like a lot of other bands like Heart and the Doobie Brothers, and so yeah. we, we did a lot of gigs together, so we got to be friends and stuff. And, and then when I joined the band, the only two guys from the original band in Marshall Tucker were Jerry Eubanks and uh, Doug Gray. Yep. And anyway, they had a little falling out, and they were going to part ways, and Doug called me up and said, hey, you know, I mean, I basically do the same thing that Jerry does. I play keyboards and horns and stuff. So, so it was a no-brainer. And he called Good. me up and said, you want to check this out? I said, yeah, why not? Yep, so. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Awesome. I went out there and played with them for, well, I played from 96 to 2000, and I took a year off and then played another three years, so years after okay. that. Okay. Yeah. And then that was what it was, you know, so I got, yeah, I, uh, I, I quit the time that I quit. I'm kind of glad I did, because I would have had to quit anyway, because I got cancer after that. And oh, you did? Yeah. Oh, what know. happened? I mean, I well, assume you're okay now? Oh, yeah, I mean, I'm six years clean now, you know, but, Good. Uh, you know, so it's uh, actually maybe even more than that, I lose count, but, yeah, I went through that, and uh, so that was all good timing thing, the uh, power to be in the universe was doing well, I had a good time to quit, but, okay. but anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no kidding. But I went through that, and, um, you know, it was quite an experience, and eye opener makes you appreciate life on an everyday way, you never Absolutely. know. Absolutely. Do you continue to record with Marshall Tucker Band and just not tour with them? What's your daily? Uh, I mean, what do you do now? How do you, how do you pay your bills now? Do you? Pl- I assume you play Firefall shows. I don't yeah, know how do often Firefall. you guys play. Well, we do Firefall shows, and we do forty to fifty days a year, and then that's one reason why I'm doing this new jazz thing because usually in the winter time we're uh, not really playing and working, and I like to work all the time, so I'm trying yeah. to move myself into that genre where I can go out and states in the winter and stuff and uh, keep myself busy. And besides, I like that. I did a, yeah. Um, not too long ago in Boca Raton at this little place called the Funky Biscuit. It's a lot of fun, you know. I mean, it's a, it's a different vibe and a different, different thing for me. And, you know, I mean, I just showed up and there were some really great players down there. And, you know, they yeah. Yeah. Ran through the shit once and went and did the show and it all turned out. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, yeah. So nice. Yeah. Did you have you ever? Um, were there ever lean enough years where you couldn't make a living in music? You had to go do other things or get a no. different job. Oh, I've good. For, I've been fortunate. I've made a living pretty much, you know, my whole life as a musician. That's a good thing too because I could never hold down a day job. You know. <laughs> <laughs> Not easy. <laughs> I don't have the personality. I don't take orders too well. You yeah, know, so. I know I mean, I it well. I, I, I'm, a, I'm a team player as long as, in my mind, you know, we're doing the right things and right. it's on to wrapping up. But if I see somebody being nasty or asking something stupid, I'm the first one to speak up. Yeah, yeah. I uh, I do have a regular job and a problem with authority, and they don't go together very well. <laughs> so yeah. I can yeah. uh, I can feel you on that for sure. 
talking about? Uh, no, I don't. I'm, oh, no. you don't? Oh, well, then <laughs> maybe that's too nerdy. I don't know. Yeah. No, I, I know the, the, the lyric was there, but, you know, actually, Larry wrote that song actually before the, you know, he came out to join the band. That was one of the first things he wrote. And, um, okay. And that, actually, I can tell you a little story about that, you know, that lyric. I mean, in those days, in the Bible Belt, the radio stations banned the song. They wouldn't play it because... Oh, no, surprised. Because of that lyric, and they wanted us to go back in and change the lyric to "Gosh darn." <laughs> <laughs> and Larry refused. He said, "No way." <laughs> yeah, it's just a very different song yeah, when you I, do that, right? You know, and I can't say that Coke wasn't around and stuff, and I can't really speak for Larry because I didn't write the song, but I can't, you know, that reference. I mean, you know, might just have been frustration. You know, I don't know if it had any other meaning. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. Well, if you ever watch Pulp Fiction again, pay attention to that scene, because I'm pretty sure when she said that, she is quoting your song, Cinderella. So, anyway. Yeah, Yeah, maybe just some nerdy thing on my part. I don't know. But anyway. 
We actually okay. have a couple of movies. I think we got a, I forget what song we got in Dumb and Dumber 2. Or <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, I know. You guys pop up all over the place. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. Well, that's the, you know, that's the thing about the band, and you hit it on the nail at the first. It's like, even to this day, you know, nobody named Harley. You know, the name, the Firefall name is not a household name, and definitely the guys in the band are not household names. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you, you mentioned the songs, and everybody goes, oh, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You yep. know, it's like, and, it, you know, it's, uh, I mean, you got to realize our biggest hit, which was our little bitty You Are the Woman, I mean, it's been played over 700 million times, uh, not 700, but seven, 7 million times. 7 the million times, yeah. In, uh, in the United States, so. You know, whether you're in an elevator or whether you're in a doctor's office or <laughs> listen to iTunes or anything like right. that, you know, you're going to hear that song. And it's amazing. You know, you know, a lot of young kids would have no idea who the heck we were. We are exactly trying to oh, I've heard that song. You know, exactly. That's what happened to me. It just took yeah. a long time to connect the dots, and then I became a, a huge fan. So yeah. you got to tell me. You got to tell me some stories. I mean, when you look back. So, two things that I ask almost everyone I talk to, if you have a big regret, if there's something, you know, that you blew it on something or made a decision that kind of altered the course of your career in a way that you wish it hadn't. But then I also want to hear just your best stories, you know, when you, even whatever you're comfortable sharing, but they can be crazy, they can be debaucherous, they can be fun, they can be whatever you want. Well, there's lots of stuff out there, and uh, some of them are, need to be in books, and some of them can be repeated. And some of them repeated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, but uh, as far as regrets go, I have no regrets. I feel very fortunate in the fact that I'm still doing this after the band. I mean, I've been through different things, and you know, like to play different kinds of music, but coming back to the band, I've been back in the band now like four years, and you know, I just enjoy playing this stuff, you know, and, yeah. and having three original band marks up in the band and Jock and myself, you know, so we kind of, you know, we don't always agree on everything, but we're brothers, and yeah. we're not, and uh, so there's that, that that brings, but I don't really regret anything. I, I uh, consider myself very fortunate, and all the mistakes we made were just mistakes you make in life, and it's like living with a family. You know, you don't always sure. have complete, complete, complete control of what's going on. You know, so you just have to mm-hmm. ride the wave and make the best of it. So yeah. I feel very fortunate. As far as story goes, let's see. I could tell one story, I guess. I don't know if Stevie Nicks will probably appreciate this. Oh, uh, tell it. I was hoping yeah. it would be a Stevie story. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> We used to play, I mean, you know, you have to understand the band, the guitar, was basically the guitar band before I came in. I played sax, and a lot of times we'd have small dressing rooms, and, you know, I'd be warming up on the sax, and everybody would go, get the hell out of here. You know, warm up. Uh-huh. I don't really want to listen to this. So, anyway, we're, we're doing a gig at the Roxy in uh, in L.A., and uh, I'm basically, the dressing room upstairs has this closet, so I'm in the closet warming up my saxophone, and... Stevie Nicks came with her entourage to set in that day with us, you know, and basically she's looking for a place with her little entourage to get out of the mainstream because they want to do a little couple snorts. Uh-huh, <laughs> of course. They go and say, mind if we come in? And I go, no, I don't mind. Come on in, you know. And then it comes in, she goes, would you like a bump or two? And I go, no, sir. I go, no, thanks, because I didn't ever do coke. I don't like coke, you know. Oh, really? Oh, interesting. Yeah. 
So basically, she just she had this dumbfounded look on her face, like, "What's the matter with you?" <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, her nostril is on fire, right? From uh, yeah, you know, too much drugs. She's saving it for her and her girlfriends, you know. So I mean, yeah. hey, it, it was a wise, uh, it was a wise decision on her part because she <laughs> out in the mainstream. There, it was like, oh, okay. Yep. Oh, it's laughing. Those are things, you know, I mean, hey, uh, everybody's realizing mean, there's lots of drugs and things going on in those days. Sure. sure everybody's sure. young and everybody's partaking and stuff. So yeah. The problem, the problem was, was just like knowing when to stop. So Yeah, yeah. And that's, that's always been the problem with a lot of that stuff. Like, sure. My, I was fortunate I never really liked cocaine, so I never, to me, yeah. it was a, to me it was a stupid drug. You know, you get a bump, you talk real talk your head off for 15, 20 minutes, and then you need another bump. You know, it's like, oh, right. shit, I gotta, you know, got to buy some more. <laughs> so what was your uh, what was your poison back then? My poison was uh, was a quaaludes and a nice bowl of hash, you know. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Too bad you, you know, don't live back in in Colorado. You know, it's legal yeah. here now. It's everywhere. Oh, yeah, I know. Yeah, I know. But you know what? These days and times, I don't do anything. I don't drink. I don't smoke. I mean, it's okay. like. I actually, when I had cancer, someone gave me some of those pills that are basically pot derivatives to try to boost up your uh, uh-huh. you know, your appetite, and you're not supposed to get high off of them, but, you know, when he gave them to me, I got a little buzz off of them, and I went, I'm not feeling real good right now. I don't think I want to accentuate this feeling. Yes, you know? yes. So, <laughs> so I, oh, that's I classic. Back, I gave them back to the guy, said, you take them, I don't need them, you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh well, good stuff. Well, thanks a lot for talking to me, Dave. I uh, I really appreciate it. I um I you know I, I had reached out to you guys and to Rick because I I never know who's going to reply and agree to be on the show, and so I just figured I'd cover all my bases. And well, no, Rick hey, agreed to talk it. too. Yeah, no, Rick Rick's a Rick's a storyteller. You know, I mean, hey, I love Rick. He's my brother. You know, so uh, yeah. Get a chance to talk to him. The thing of it is, it's not you know. There's a one thing I'll tell you. Everybody has a different perspective. We all went through the same shit, but everybody sure. has a different perspective on the stories. There's a of course. There's of course. Ricky's some stories. Matter of fact, he had, in one of his books, he uh, there was a story where we were on a bus tour and we were down south somewhere. And, you know, in those days, you can, you know you could pee on the bus, but you didn't do number two on the bus. So we were out in the middle of the west, so the bus stopped, and I went over into this field and passed cow pasture and stuff and did my thing. I'm coming back, and this uh, hog starts chasing me because he had a bunch of pigs there. And so Ricky tells the story, but he kind of embellishes. He says, yeah, he was running with pink toilet paper. Well, first of all, the toilet paper was crushing. It wasn't pink. <laughs> anyway, my point being, you know, oh. if you're or anybody else, we all have a little different perspective on sure. the story. So, but, sure. you, know, Rick, you know, Rick would be a great person if you haven't already talked to him. Talk to him some more. No, I'm hoping to soon. And then I'm going to put you two together and make it just one big, long ex- episode about Firefall from two different perspectives. So, anyway. Yeah. Well, put them together. Ricky, I love you, buddy. Good. Oh, good. Well, thank you, Dave, for doing this with me. I love you guys a lot, and it was a blast to talk to you. You're a good man. Thanks a lot. Hey, I appreciate it, and thanks for listening to the music. Absolutely. Keep it going.
keep us all guys working. This is it. This is what I honest i was the first question i want to ask you was why don't you perform with firefall but then i was uh googling why that might be and i found out about a fall you took a few years ago and so tell me about you how are you doing well i'm doing fine uh that was uh, a thing definitely a rather large thing uh it, it seemed like a simple household accident I, I was walking down the hall one morning and we had we had dogs. They were puppies at the time, and one of them had chewed of a pen. So we put a little fur rug over the carpet until we could get it cleaned. Uh-huh. And the dogs had been fooling around with it and got it all scrunched up. I was walking down the hall and I tripped over it and I hit my head, my forehead against the corner of a kitchen island, mm. and it bled for like three or four minutes. I punctured a little bit and then stopped. And I thought nothing more about it. Over the course of the next week, a little blood blister formed, and on Mother's Day, in fact, it was, in 2006, my wife sitting across the room said, Rick, that blood blister just popped. And I went, oh, my fingers up and came with blood, so I had blood better lay down. So I let gravity do its work. So I did, uh-huh. but it wouldn't stop bleeding. So we finally went to the hospital. They stopped bleeding. They did an EEG on me, and uh, they said, you know, your fall wasn't nothing. You had a subdural hematoma. And among other things, you're going to lose your ability to walk. And I went, nah, this happened a week ago. I'm walking fine. And they went, nah, it's going to happen. I said, when? This is soon. I said, well, oh, that's wow. nice. So another month went by with nothing. And then one morning I got out of bed and my legs crumpled on me. I could not get up. Wow. And uh, so that was the beginning of a year and a half where I could not walk, period. Now, they yeah. told me at the time it happened, they said, well, it's 50-50. Uh, you know, it may not be permanent. You may be able to get your use of your legs back if you're willing to do a lot of hard work, but it won't mm-hmm. just come back. 
And since I didn't believe him, I just kind of, you know, passed it all off. But after I ceased being able to walk, it still took me a while to get my head around it, so to speak, because it was only my legs. Nothing else was affected. And it took it a month after everything had gone down. Wow. So it was a while before I could finally accustom myself to the fact that, well, yeah, what they said was right. So yeah. then I went into physical therapy, and it took about three years to relearn to walk entirely. Oh, but I'm man. fine with that now, and okay. uh, that's all behind me. Uh, oh, the good. thing with Firepool, um, basically, that was more, uh, you know, I, I left Firepool in 1981, mm-hmm. and I came back with them, and the band broke up on left them, and about a year later or less, uh, the label, they got in touch with uh, the lawyer who got them represented, Jock Barbie. And said, look, there's a lot of money to be made from this name. We know mm-hmm. Rick doesn't want to do it, but Jock wanted to take it on. So Jock said, yeah, he would. So he reformed the band. And they went through the 80s. They probably had 20-plus people in the band. Oh, wow. And all that. But then about 1988, uh, I was living in California. I had a band called Roberts Meisner, Randy Meisner for me. Sure. And uh, we were we were doing well, but Randy uh, left to go back with Poco, uh, oh, one of his former affiliations. And so uh, at the same time, I got a call from Jock asking if I wanted to come back to Firefall. And uh, I wanted to come back to Colorado, one other thing. Mm-hmm. So I, I said, okay. So I rejoined, but I was drinking way too much at the time. Uh, I okay. slowly digressed into serious alcoholism. Yeah. And uh, so in 1992... I left the band by putting much of a mutual consent, but I, I think if it hadn't been mutual consent, they would have gone ahead and fired me right. for a while. Okay. Okay. But um, so that was pretty much my end with Firefall. Although even now, the three quarters of their set is my songs from the yeah. Years. And yeah. So basically, Jock has he's managed to get David Muse back in the band, Mark Andy's back in the band. Yeah. And couldn't uh, pretty much well. That's not really true. Uh, mm-hmm. My voice is not as high as it used to be because I'm, okay. I'm now 67 years old. I'm not 25 anymore. <laughs> right. And nature, nature has a way of doing that. Yeah. But, um, you know, he, they've got a very good band, and we're all pals and everything like that. Um, and Larry Burnett is the other singer-songwriter from the old days. And Larry mm-hmm. and I talked, we just talked yesterday, in fact. Oh, good. And uh, we're, we're okay. all pals. In fact, yeah, I think Jock is... is okay. Yeah, Jock is going to uh, just been getting everybody's okay to put out a DVD of uh, 1979 performance of a Houston concert that they have. Okay. And, uh, so I think that'll be coming up in, in the next couple of months. Oh, that's um, great. So it, it's all okay. good and everything, you know. Right. But in fact, before we started on recording this stuff, you said, and how you look back on your career. And and what you think about it? I, I was going to answer with two words: not over, <laughs> because <laughs> really? I just, I have just I have just started doing house concerts as a soloist again. Really? Um, you know, between the burritos and and firefall, as you may know, I, I have yeah. two solo albums and and yep. toured as a soloist extensively two years, and uh, and put firefall together. So house concert thing is something I just really recently stumbled on although yeah. you know it's it's been going on for quite a while but it's it's really neat my my theory about it is that our generation is the first generation that 
simply did not give up his music. I mean, mm. everyone, my parents loved Frank Sinatra until the day they died, and he died, mm-hmm. and all But they, it wasn't part of their regular practice to go out and buy his new record, if you should put one out, or yeah. to go to his concerts, unless they were in Vegas and it was part of the holiday package or whatever, you know. But our generation does. They, if, yeah. if their favorite artists are still touring, they go see them, they go buy the new product, whatever. Um, yeah. And the byproduct of that is that everyone has seen their favorite artist a dozen mm-hmm. times. They've heard the songs a thousand times, and now they're looking for something a little more. So a house yeah. concert is perfect venue for it. I, wow. my, my thing, I'm, I'm billing it, is songs and stories with Peter Roberts because yes. I'm, I'm singing and, and my songs and old songs and new songs, and I'm telling my stories. I would and, love uh, that. So, Rick, i got to ask. I mean, I live down the street from you. I live in Denver. You're up in Longmont, right? That's right. Yep. I mean, how are you at liberty to say? How much would it cost if I wanted you to come play at my house? <laughs> well, uh, it varies from time to time. Okay. Uh, I will tell you, by the way, since you were in Denver, I am playing at Stargazer's Theater uh, in Cover Springs on the 20th, which really? is two weeks from today, in fact. Yeah. yeah. I'm doing my show down there, and uh, and you know I've got two books now that I've written, and I'm uh-huh. selling those books too. One is called, in fact, Song Stories, and it's not songs and stories; it's song stories because it's not an yeah. audio book. Uh, okay. But and the other one is called Lame Brain, and that's the story of my injury and my alcoholism and recovery right. from same. Okay. okay. Uh, and so that's all going on. Yeah. But wow. anyway, you know, I, I just you I got to talk about kinda, this. Oh, definitely. Yeah, I'd be willing to because I'm I'm spreading out. I'm, I'm going to California in June doing a couple shows, and uh, sometime in the next couple months I'm going to the D.C. area and doing a couple things. Huh. And you know, I'm I'm intending to just go out and do it wherever because okay. I, I think we're re- returning to the Will Rogers era. You know, where you yeah. you yeah. go out and you do things. I got kind of. Uh, tricked into doing the first thing I did for five years after my injury since I hit my the left side of my forehead it affected mm-hmm. the right side of my body more than oh, anything wow. else and so while I cord fine my right arm uh, I still have a kind of a tenuous relationship you know? um, uh-huh. and I mean I can do everything normally but playing guitar is sort of a little beyond normal functioning, yeah. Okay. And so I'm really I've had to kind of learn how to play guitar on the right hand okay. again, you know. And yeah. as a result, I can I can only play about half of my own songs. Oh boy! So for a long time, I'd pick up the guitar, and when I was unable to do things that I had done for 40 years, or you know, been doing for the major part of that time. It was really frustrating, and after a half an hour, I'd put the guitar down and not pick it up for another half an hour. Excuse me. They'd play for half an hour and not pick it up for another two weeks. Excuse me. Huh. But, but nonetheless, uh, this guy convinced me to come to a house concert at his guitar shop, and because not all house concerts are in houses. You know, but nonetheless, sure, sure. Uh, he said, hey, you only have to play three or four songs and tell us your stories. You've got so many stories. Right. And uh, I said, well, okay, so... I buckled down and started really working it, not letting my frustration uh, beat me. And uh-huh. before I knew it, I had like 15, 20 songs. And uh, I rearranged some and simplified a few. And yeah. then, 
done things, and then reworked a few to accommodate my voice, because I've made a bad mistake as a songwriter in early in my <laughs> career. And that is, I, I had a very, very high voice, and I wrote high in my register, sort of yeah. a double whammy as the years went by. Yeah, and as a result, certain songs were. I mean, I still can. I can hit all the same notes, mm-hmm. but I can't hit some of the top notes with the ease, and yeah. they don't sound the same. They sound a little more strained, and it's yeah. different, not bright. And I've also found that you really can't take songs and and put them in a different key, and because when you take away that the particular edge of your voice. It changes the whole sound of mm-hmm. things, you know, and, and right. they move comfortable to sing, but they no longer, they they don't translate the flow. Anyway, yeah. so okay. so I've, I've just reworked some things, and, and it's been quite an adventure, but, but I've been having a great time doing it. So now I'll stop. I mean, this is a conversation, <laughs> not a monologue. So no, that's it's great. Your turn. This is so interesting. I mean, I want to get into the beginning with the Flying Burrito Brothers and all that stuff, too. So one of the things that we try to cover on the podcast is how people make a living when Spotlight has kind of moved on, and but you're still there want, trying to be a musician. How do you make a living? How do you pay your bills? I know you've been doing a lot of things, but it looks like since the end of Firefall 20, 35 years ago, it's been sort of more sporadic. Is that right? Well, yeah, but I'll tell you what. Uh, since then, I've been involved in two projects which last a while and and kept money coming in. Okay. Uh, the Roberts Miser Band was together for four years. True. And uh, okay. we, we did never record. And that was kind of an interesting thing because it was an excellent band, really a good band, with Randy and me. And the drummer was Ron Grinnell from uh, Dan Fogler and Southern Cure. Uh, the guitar player was Kerry Park, who played Bruce Hornsby and uh, uh, a band called Bruce Boy Hunter. Howdy, yeah. and it, he's an incredible guitar player. Uh, and uh, Bray Gillia on uh, sax and, and uh, flute and keyboards and guitar. And, and, you know, just a very good band. But the thing is, it, when we went looking for a record label, our reputations in two ways worked against us. Number one, a more obvious one was both Randy and I had, I guess, acquired a, a reputation as party boys, which uh, didn't help at all, you know. Yeah. Um, but not only that, we were both associated with the West Coast sound, I guess they call it, from mm-hmm. one of them. Mm-hmm. The yeah. Eagles and Firefall and America and yep. the and all that stuff. The Laurel Canyon. Yeah, and that sound was passing at that time in favor of rap and hip hop. Yeah, sure. And record labels, who were still in, in control at that point, record labels were very gun shy about getting stuck with yesterday's news, so to speak. Yeah. So the band didn't generate as much excitement as we expected. And that put into that. That's one reason Randy went back. He got a, a huge financial offer from Capitol Records, uh, the whole band Poco did, to make yeah. what, what became the Legacy album. Legacy, that was and, that uh, their last big hit on it, too. Yeah, wow. and uh, so, so that all happened. And then also, just before that, in the earlier part of the 80s, I spent uh, two years with something called... A 20th anniversary salute to the birds. Yes. Okay. Which which was probably the best band, man for man, I ever played in my life. Really? It I had bet. it had Gene Clark and Michael Clark from the original Birds, uh-huh. John York from the Latter Day Birds, 
Blondie Chaplin from the Beach Boys and the Rolling Stones, Rick Danko and Richard Manuel from the band, and me. Yeah. And That's amazing. When, when Richard Manuel decided to, for uh, personal reasons, to, to duck out, we replaced him with Mickey Hopkins, who's a legend in British British circles. Played with the Beatles and the Who and the Rolling Stones, everybody like that, uh, uh-huh. as a keyboard player. And so it was a tremendous man. But in answer to your question, I have good fortune to have been the major songwriter for Firefall. Yeah, and yeah. I still have a, a income that, that is better than some people's okay. without that's walking out the door. Yeah. yeah. Okay, that's what I was it, driving at. If you could continue, because yeah. Firefall had, I don't know, half a dozen, a dozen decent-sized hits, one or two that get, still get played with some regularity, like you are the woman and, and Cinderella and stuff like that. And so I've always just wondered. Remember. When it all goes crazy and the thrill is gone, the days get rainy and the nights get long. When you get that feeling you were born to lose, staring at your ceiling, thinking of your blues. When there's so much trouble that you want to cry The world has crumbled and you don't know why When your hopes are fading and they can't be found Dreams are left you waiting, friends are let you down Just remember I love you and it'll be alright And I've wondered if that was enough to, you know, pay your bills from it then does. on. Or if you Basically ever had to does. get a job outside of music or do anything else. If, if I did, I'd be deep to because <laughs> uh, unfortunately, else, you know, right? I, that's it. I, I started seriously pursuing music at the age of 18. Uh, I, I was a ghost presence when I was in college. <laughs> I, yeah. I, yeah. I, I enrolled in college more to uh, to address the college lifestyle than to go to college. And so uh, I was sharpening my musical skills and all that stuff. I never really um, acquired any marketable skills. I, you know, when I went to college, the the approach was meant to be, or the, the, the accepted doctrine was I was going to study for law. Yeah. Because they told me, you know, you have a vivid imagination, command of the language, and a gift of gab. You'd make a great trial lawyer. And since I had grown up with watching Perry Mason, I thought, wow, a lawyer, that would be cool. <laughs> and then I, I got into a few classes and discovered that 95% of legal work is paperwork. Yeah. And the thing that almost prevented me from getting to college was I wouldn't do my homework. I hated paperwork. I did really, really well on tests. You know, I, I had my very, very high scores. But even school, I mean, they in Florida where I grew up, they had something called the Florida Senior Placement Test. And you have to score 325 for a potential 495 as a top score. It's 5% And if you score 325, you're eligible for the Florida State University. And in fact, with C average, they have to accept you. Well, I scored 489 
out of four D hog one. Which was your highest in my school wow. and tied Good for enough. highest in the county. And wow. I could not get accepted to the state universities because I did not have a two point oh average oh. because because I wouldn't do homework. And no. and the word came down from the the office failing. You know, if you every homework assignment is bring in dropped in the letter grade. Which mm-hmm. in classes like you know, algebra two trade or or chemistry or any of those, you're out in a week because you have homework every night. And <laughs> when yeah. you don't do yeah. it every night, you know. Yeah. So so it was kind of a you know a little dilemma. So so when I found out that law was mostly paperwork, I backed off very quickly. Sure. Yeah. And uh, and never really pursued anything else except my music. And mm-hmm. so. Uh, okay. Yeah. So that, there I'm it is. curious. I'm curious how you got involved in the Burrito Brothers in the first place because. Um, you know, you say you're from Florida. You live in Colorado now, but I'm guessing at one point, probably shortly after this this law school consideration, you decided to pack up and move to California and try your hand to become kind of a rock star. And the Burrito Brothers are sort of a legendary band, but they're almost legendary for the people who passed through versus the amount of success they had on their own. You know what I mean? It's like like a farm team in baseball. All these Hall of Famers passed through the Burrito Brothers, including you. And so how did that even get started? Well, I'll tell you what. What happened was I chased a woman up to Washington, D.C., ah, yeah. and, and I was I was playing around in mostly at hoot nannies. I couldn't okay. get a job, you know, as a soloist. I didn't know enough people to get in a band or whatever. So I played at a hoot nanny at the cellar door. Uh, it, and I think you're old enough to know what names are, but, but sure. I don't know if everybody is. But like open mic nights in those. Uh, and after the, after my little mini set, a guy came. He said, "I think you're really talented. I'd like to make a record with you." Uh, I said, "Really? Do you do that?" So he said, "Yeah, you might have heard of him. My name is Paul Rothschild." Now Paul Rothschild produced The Doors, Janis Joplin. Mm-hmm. That's how I know that. And I thought, yeah. you know, I thought mm-hmm. Doors, Janis Joplin, Ruth Roberts makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. So he he <laughs> told me how if I would make my way to California, where he was based, that he would put me on a retainer until he finished his current project, and then we would go to work on my record. Okay. Well, that should have rung some bells with me if I if I had no more about how music worked because nobody puts anybody on retainer. They just don't do that. Sure. And so anyway, I hitchhiked to California, and I mm. went to his house. He gave me an address for his house. I went to his house, knocked at the door, and this guy comes up there, and he said, yes. I said, uh, I'm here to see Paul. He said, I'm Paul. I said, no, you're not. He said, yes, I am. I said, Paul Russell. He said, yes. I said, well, then, well, because the guy in D.C. had been a total yeah. fraud. He was not yeah. a total fraud. Oh, oh man. So what at that scam. point, well, you know, the thing is, my 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 vision of myself as, as the next rock and roll star just had been shattered in, in sure. five easy minutes, you know. Yeah. So I, I, uh, I, as a matter of, of miraculous fact, uh, I bumped into literally, Bumped into a guy on the street as I was morosely walking around Hollywood after a meeting with Paul for a few minutes. He listened to a couple of my songs, by the way. Mm-hmm. It was nice stuff to do that. And said, you know, you do have talent, but, but you're in a whole new arena here. Everybody here has talent. So you need to go out and play around here for a year or so and then come back and see me. And we'll see what we can do. Well, you know, that wasn't my idea. <laughs> you know, and I didn't have any yeah. money at all. Then. Sure, sure. So 
I, I bumped into this guy, and I said, excuse me, he said, excuse me, Rick? And I said, Nick? And it was a guy that I had been on a commune with in the Shenandoah Valley earlier in that summer. No and way. Nobody talked about where they were from, but he was from L.A., and he'd come back to finish film school at USC. Oh, and it turned out his, his dad was an iconic choreographer named Nick Castle, and who choreographed one from Laurel and Hardy to the June Taylor dancers, and uh-huh. Nick Jr. Nick Jr. wanted to be a film director, which he became, by the way. If you ever oh, saw the movie The Last Starfighter, uh-huh. uh huh, he yeah. did. He directed that movie. Okay. Uh, he co-wrote. Uh, he co-wrote Escape from New York uh, with oh, John nice. Carpenter. Yeah. And his big, his biggest claim to fame, I found out a few years ago, happened years later. He was the man behind the mask, as whatever his name was in Halloween or, or whatever, with Chainsaw, that oh, guy, you know, yeah. Mike Myers uh, or, or was it Jason, yeah, whatever. Jason but he, but that's who, yeah. yeah, that was him, yeah. Really? But with, behind the hockey mask, I, I didn't know, I never saw the movie anyway. But yeah, but oh, that's what wow. I looked up. I looked up Nick Castle says, yeah, it's Mike Meyer or whatever his name was. Yeah. yeah. But Jason, yeah. Uh, and so anyway, uh, but Nick took me home and put me at their house for like two or three months. And I started making the rounds uh, of auditions, you know, recommendals, mm-hmm. trying to see if I couldn't get signed. Because in, in the late 60s, uh, which this was, 1969, you know, they were throwing money around very loosely and signing a lot of people. And, uh, you know, I, I did like 10 or 12 demos, but the answer was always the same in the end, but not exactly what we're looking for right now. So I was about to pack it in. And uh, a guy, by that time, I was living in a converted free house in UCLA, mm. uh, and, and I used to go over and play on the student union sets, just, you know, for the exposure. And uh, this guy, who was the A&R liaison man, with UCLA and Columbia Records, he had heard me and got me to audition for them, and they turned me down. But he came by one day and said, Rick, look, we've got a new head of A&R, and he's going to love you. I want you to come back to Columbia with me. Because he figured if he could get a, an artist signed, he wanted to go on in music, and uh, it would be a big feather in his cap if he could mm-hmm. discover something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I went back, and I played for this guy in Dallas, Lindy, and I played 20 songs, and he said, you know, you, you're a really good singer and good songs, but but you're the band, which was something I'd been told umpteen jillion times. Right. And so I he picked up his phone. And I figured, well, that's it for this. <laughs> so I started packing my clothes. What are you doing, Sam? I said, What are you doing? I thought he said, No, no. And he was calling to get me a band. So oh, what wow. he did was, he said, I know this guy. He manages a band called the Flying Buddha. So do I know who they are? He said, Yeah. Well, Graham Parsons just left that band. And they're kind of just doing nothing. They're kind of performing as a quartet. I bet you they'd be willing to back you. And if they were, we'd be willing to, to sign you. I went, whoa, this is amazing. Nice. So that's how that all came about. Okay. It was total, okay. total shit. And coincidentally, just postscript, when I went finally six weeks later to my first audition with them, uh, you had to play them my song and everything, we both, me and the band, had two very separate concepts of what was happening. I went mm-hmm. in there to play them my songs and see if they liked them and would like to back me. They thought I was auditioning to join the band. Uh, so so I went in and yeah. saying, okay, do you know? And I went, ah. 
said, okay, do you know what Let me show you. He said, well, where? Do you know? And I said, I said, you are the worst prepared guy for the show I ever saw in my life. I said, audacious. I thought we were doing this to give you guys one of the backbeat. He said, no, you you wanted me to be the band. I said, wait, hold on. So, so, uh, we, we went on with that a little bit, for a couple weeks or so, uh-huh. and they, they gave me a, a trial run at the Whiskey O' Go-Go, uh, right. opening, opening for the birds, and the current birds of that day, which was Roger sure. McGuinn, Clarence White, Gene Parsons, and Skip Patton. And so we go in, and while we're playing, the birds came to the club, and we finished our first set and went upstairs to the dressing rooms, and the way the whiskey was up, there was one, there were two dressing rooms, and in between them there was a Wall to wall, uh, they called it a clause, but it was really a, just a, another narrow room. And I was sitting in there where it was quiet to sort of gather myself because I bet I'm saved my first nationally known band. And you're wow, this is all cool. Mm-hmm. I hear Hillman and Clarence White in the next room, Chris Hillman, uh, talking. And Clarence said, Hey, Chris, who's that new guy I got to with you? And Chris said, Oh, it's Rick Roberts. He said, He's in the band or just uh, sitting in? And Chris said, Well, he's kind of trying out. He's kind of on hold at this point. And Clarence said to him, I'm, I'm overhearing all this, you know. He uh-huh, says, uh-huh. well, you better get him, because if you don't, I'm going to talk to Roger about you. That book is insane. And, really? and about, about five minutes later, Chris says, walks in and thinks, oh, there you are. Want to be a burrito? <laughs> I'm like, well, yeah, <laughs> you know. And so that's the, that's the way it happened. It all, one night, that's yeah, amazing. Boom. That's when it changed. I mean, you went from being a guy who had stars in his eyes and dreams of making it, and that's really the yeah. first step on the career that's been going for 50 years or whatever ever since, right? Yeah, 45 that's years. It. That's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> so I'm curious when, you know, Firefall, I hadn't – so I talked to David Muse last week too. And yeah. um, I hadn't really thought about the fact that Firefall was almost for its time a bit of a super group. Everybody who came into the group had been doing other things up to that point that were – relatively successful you know and firefall was just kind of a meeting of the mind of the minds for these guys i'm curious if there had been any kind of sense of competition because you know bernie ledden leaves and he goes on to the eagles and chris hillman goes on to do a solo career and gene clark does a solo career and everybody's sort of in this melting pot in la that you're now a part of and some people venture off and they find more success than other people. Were you conscious of that as it's happening? Was there any level of competition well, or anything? not? Not really, because Chris, Chris was, uh, you know, Chris, his solo career actually got off at the same time as Firefall. In fact, uh, he, we did our first record album in December of 1975 in Miami, and we came back home here to Colorado, and I flew back to Miami three weeks later to sing and play on Chris's first solo album, Sales mm-hmm. uh, Slipping Away, excuse me. And uh, he was doing his Criteria Studios, he plays the weed that was. And his major success post-Birds and Burritos came with the Desert Rose Band, and they had mm. several number one records. But Bernie, of course, had gone. And with Bernie, it was strange because we kind of, we didn't really fire Bernie, but, but we kind of, showed him the door, in a manner of speaking. The thing was, when Bernie was never comfortable with me in the band, because when oh. Graham left, Bernie, Chris and Graham had been singing all the two-part things, and Bernie came in with me, did the third part. So when Graham left, it became Chris and Bernie singing all the things. 
And so he'd stepped up. Then when I came in, he went back to being the third guy, plus Chris and I were co-writing. So that was it. And then um, when Sneaky left, we replaced him on the spot that same day. The, the day we heard Sneaky was not coming to a gig, our manager came and said, but I got this new guy. His name was Al Perkins. He mm. came in here with a band from Texas called Shiloh, which mm. produced Don Henley, by the way, and that's one yep. of the people. Uh, and uh, if you like, he's going to sit in with you this weekend. If you like him, maybe you can work something out. So he came in. Not only was he a pedal steel player as good as Sneaky, slightly different, but at, on the same level of excellence, he mm. also was a hot guitar player. Mm. And so suddenly Bernie was the odd man out singing and writing, mm. And he wasn't even as good a guitar player as Al was. Yeah. Or different. Bernie played uh, very country or bluegrass style. They were single picky, but uh, and Al was more of a of a Jimi Hendrix big big guitar, you know. Got it. Okay. And I I envisioned the two of them working together being a great thing, like like Stephen and Neil in Buffalo Springfield. Mm-hmm. But Bernie didn't see it that way, mm-hmm. and he was not very happy with the whole thing. And I say showed him the door. It's not like we really. It's not like we really wanted him out. We just right. weren't that concerned with him staying. And frankly, we found out what a terrible mistake we made, not because we were with the Eagles, but because replacing him was pretty much impossible. The band pretty much ended when Bernie left. I mean, we had yeah. Kenny Works, who was a tremendously good player and singer, that replaced him and, and added in Byron Berlin on fiddle and things. But it, it wasn't the same tight unit that it was yeah. when it was... Yeah you know, five of us that are the third album, or, or with Al, too, yeah, with that, yeah. that band. Uh, you know, and so the Bernie fact, we were all very happy for him that he went on to Eagle. Sure. And, and sure. all those early Eagles albums were, were stunning. I mean, the, the sound yeah. that those guys had was unlike any other. I, I thought it kind of digressed a little when they went to be more and more of a rock and roll band. Right, you know? okay. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I, I love Joe Walsh's work, but I, I I don't think that it was the best thing for that special, Got it. You know, that yeah. witchy woman sound. That, that, uh, yeah. all the, all Life in the Fast things. Lane. Yeah. Yeah. When yeah. You, you well, know, Life, in the, Life in the Fast Lane is after they got more rock and roll. And Heartache yeah. Tonight and uh, all right. those That's things. I mean. They sound yeah. like, they, they, those are songs that, that a whole lot of bands could have done. But Very nobody true. else could have done Take It Easy like those Very guys did, Witchy yeah. Woman and yeah. and all the all the first two, Desperado and, and yeah. okay. wonderful, wonderful stuff. Yeah. And and so, you know, we were happy for Bertie. And sure. when I came out, you know, I did my two solo albums. And I got dropped by Annie and that the second one. They followed him for seven days and lost him when he turned away from where they thought that he was sure to go. But they caught him up in Lewistown, and when they shot that convict down, they could hear him praying soft and slow. Let your waters wash over me But deliver me I'm lost and alone And I wanna come home She was just a simple girl Having been told so many times while I was trying to break in 
that good thing, good thing, I need a band. I thought they're right. So this time I'm going to get a band. So Firefall was actually formed. It, originally, it was originally Rick Wallace and Firefall. Mm-hmm. And they were going to be my backing group for a, a new solo project. And, uh, you know, Mark was in another band called Navarro at the time, Mark Andes, mm-hmm. which we got him part-time from them with the understanding he would still be able to play with him. So when a couple of labels that were very interested in me decided to pass, then there was no longer a purpose for Rick Roberts' Firefall. So Bill was going to break up, and I said, wait, 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 this is too good of a band to break up. Let's yeah. drop the Rick Roberts, just make it Firefall. Yeah. And so that's what we did. And okay. David Muse, I had grown up with David, mm-hmm. and I figured that we needed a, a what I thought of as a utility infielder, somebody to yeah. fill in all the colors. There you go. Yep. And David was perfect for that. So so David came out here, yeah, and we added him, and then that's the way that all went. Good. But okay. uh, it, you know, as far as us being supergroup, there were three of us who had significant credit, that being mm-hmm. Michael. And of course, with Birds and Burritos, and Mark with Spirit and Joe Gunn, and, and me with my solo and Burritos. Yeah. And Jock had done Zephyr. Uh, Larry, I found driving a cab in Washington, D.C. Uh, <laughs> a, a mutual mutual friend told me there was a guy I should hear because we thought we'd be good together. Yeah. And the guy is now my manager, by the way, his name is Jim Geisler. He's a manager of the Solar Door Club in New York. In, uh, DC then, and later at the Electric Factory, anyway, he, he said, I've got this guy, his name's Larry Burnett, and he's really good, and I think you guys would fit. So Larry came and played me through the song, and I said, whoa, that's really cool. So I flew him out to Colorado from DC, and, uh, you know, and he fit in perfectly with the band. Yeah. And Michael called me, Michael Clark called me from Tacoma, Washington. He said, hey, man, I just came back from Hawaii. Uh, nobody needs the drummer? I said, well, you don't Coincidentally, Michael, yeah, I do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah. he came in that right. way. The band, it, it, in fact, the first ad for Atlantic Records, they took out a full-page ad in Billboard and said, don't call us a supergroup. And we mm-hmm. went ballistic. I mean, we were, what? What are you doing here? We're not, you know, because we didn't think of ourselves as a supergroup. You know, right. We were some successful musicians and some yeah. newcomers who were very talented who fit together. So they yeah. changed the ad. Don't don't call us a new group. They, they, they kept the same uh, video or the same visuals and, and just changed uh-huh. the words from don't call us a supergroup. Don't call us a new group. Call us Firefall. And oh, that was the ad. Okay. Okay. So, Okay. Yeah, so that um, was the deal. Do you? How do you feel about the moniker of country rock? Because I've heard some people say that they feel like either, hey, I was just making rock music, my version, or I was just making country music, my version of it. You guys are the ones putting the labels on. Did you ever feel well, hindered by a label, or were you? did it not even enter your brain? Uh, you know, I'll tell you what. It put us in some curious situation with Firefall because due to Jock's affiliation with Graham and Michael's and my affiliation with the Britos, because the Britos and Poco really did deserve the title yeah. of Country Rock. Because sure. at that time, country was still D-I-V-O-R-C, you know, that kind mm-hmm. of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and rock was what it was. And Poco and the Britos were somewhere right in the middle. Now, in today, country music, what is mainstream country is to the rock side of yeah. what country rock was. Right, and it, right. it's called pure country today. You know, yeah. I mean, Charlie Pride's uh, country is long gone. Hank Williams, yeah. that's a, 
yeah, yeah. that's it's not there anymore. But yeah, it's it's going way way forward towards what Rockies used to be. Yeah. But when we put Firefall to, on the road, the first uh, tour that they booked us on, I guess the promoters just looked at Michael's Jocks and My Preds, not at Mark's, because Mark's first band, and I didn't even know this until Mark told me himself, Mark's first band was Canned Heat. <laughs> and, oh, yeah. You know, he, was, he, he was their first bass player when he was 15 years old. And Spirit was a jazz rock band. Sure. Dota Go was a rock and roll band. So anyway, they, they put us out on tour. The promoters signed us up on a tour with Willie Nelson, George F. Walker, and Asleep at the Wheel. And oh, had right. us booked in El Paso, Texas, Tucson, wow. Arizona. I mean, yeah. the hardcore, you know, yeah. the Lubbock, Texas, places like that. And and they had us, the way the, the bill was structured, a safety wheel opened, then us, then Jerry Jeff, and then Willie. And some people come in late expecting to hear a slip of the wheel mm-hmm. and here was this new band blasting this rock music because we yeah. were not a country rock band. We were a rock band. That's the uh-huh. Pop rock. Pop rock. Yeah, sure. You know, when you listen to stuff like Mexico and No Way Out and uh, Living Ain't Living things like that. All the empty words I've spoken All the promises I've broken All the love Now they all come back to haunt me And the silence seemed to taunt me Cause they turned the tables round the other way Living is easy with someone who cares Someone to call you their own Living is lovely with somebody There are harmonies on them, which I guess is the only qualifier that would make it not pure rock, but more pop right. rock or West Coast sound, things like that. But it was definitely not country. And after yeah. about four gigs of being booed and and being threatened by, yeah, I'll kick your ass if you if you Dad, when you go to Lubbock, Texas, you blast rock and roll at them, and they came to see Willie and uh-huh. and Jerry Jeff and, and so, you know, so we went to the promoters. We literally went to the promoters and said, look, can you switch it so that we go on first and then assume the wheel? So if somebody mm-hmm. comes in late, they aren't going to miss any of their country. You know? yeah, it's, right. not, it's not for grace. It's for our bodily safety. You know? Right, right, uh, right. So uh, you know, so that did okay. make for some interesting stuff. I but I don't, I don't mind the term country rock. I think it's it's misused in a lot of cases. There was a brief moment when there were country rock bands, which were a melding of the two very distinct forms of music that were happening then. But since then, the whole genres have formed, have merged. Yeah. So there's not. It'd be hard to to pick out. If you didn't know the people and you would just blindly put in and played these songs by some people who are mainstream country today and uh-huh. some people who are were country rock back then, you would not know who yeah. what was what. Very you know, true. I mean, who or who yeah. was who. You know, yeah. So there you have it. Okay. Well, I got to hear. I got to hear a couple of your favorite stories. 
before we wrap up. I mean, you say you're doing this house tour where you're kind of telling some of them. Maybe there's some you want to save for that, which is completely understandable. But tell me a time. Well, I'll, I'll tell you what. You, you mentioned about Coach of Dashmore. Well, maybe you didn't. Maybe I, I, I was talking earlier with my doctor, and he uh-huh. said that one of his first things he went to see because this was Nashon Young at Carnegie Hall, and mm-hmm. how he identified with Neil Young. And yeah. it brought to mind a Neil Young story that I know that yeah. I don't really use much audience. But the show, the stories of the show is very because, believe it or not, I mean, I've got like a very full cupboard of 40-plus years' worth of stories. I believe you, uh, do. But one that happened, you know, he was saying, I always identify with Neil Young. And I said, well, Neil came and said it was fireful one time. He said, really? I said, yeah. So here's the story. We were, we were co-headlining a thing with Spirit. They were doing a little reunion. Mark was playing with both bands, Mark Andy's. Uh-huh. And we went on doing the, the uh, first set. And uh, one of our roadies came out to me with a note in the middle of the show and hands it to me. And it says, Dear Rick, I don't know if you remember me, but we met last summer when you were playing in Stephen Spill's band. If it's okay with you, I'd like to come up and sit in for a couple of songs on the next set. Yours truly, Neil Young. Yeah, I, I gave a critical, critical look to our, our little guy, like, really? You know? yeah, and he went, yeah. yeah, it's really Neil. I went, let me see, Neil Young, Neil Young. Oh, yeah, I remember him. <laughs> you know, of course I remember him. I, sure. I said, you know, that was just to disproof the roadie. I said, sure, sure. of course. But, so after he said, uh, we got with Neil, and we arranged what we are going to do. So we come out on stage for a second show. And uh, it's all dark, and Neil is tuning up to make sure he's in proper tuning with the band, you know. Uh-huh. And the audience is getting a little restless out there, you know. So Neil steps up to the mic in the total door and says, It's all right, folks. And that, that kind of voice he's got, you know. That, you know. Uh-huh. It's all right, folks. Uh, just be patient. Pretend this is a boxing room, and I'm Joe Frazier. <laughs> and, and we, all the band is looking for like, huh? Now, uh-huh. as it turns out, as it turns out, I'm, I'm friends, or have been friends with with all of the guys in Buffalo Springfield, except for Bruce uh, Palmer, who died before I, mm-hmm. I was around music. But uh, um, Dewey Martin was my drummer, my first drummer in Robert Spicer band. I played with Still Dan for for a while. Uh-huh. And uh, Rich is my pastor, and, and oh. so I've had the opportunity to ask all three of those guys, do you know what he might have been by pretending to box him when I'm Bill Frazier? And every one of them had the same answer, huh? <laughs> you know? So, so I, finally, I finally took it out, I think, what he meant. You know, in, in Canada, they call a boxing ring a boxing room. Uh-huh. So I think what he was saying was, just be patient, folks, because we're going to knock you out. Yeah, yeah, probably. That, that, that's the most sense I could make of it. Other than that, <laughs> I'm in the dark. Who, yeah. knows? So, Who knows what he's talking about? Oh, that's so, and then, then the corollary to that one is that when when Mark, you know, then, Neil thinks that it was, Mark said, hey, would you like to come and sit with Spirit, too? And Neil said, yeah, I'd love to. So, unfortunately, nobody told Randy California, the League of Talk uh, right. Spirit, about it. Mm-hmm. So, and Randy was a very eccentric gentleman. He was a very colorful, yeah. like, great guy, great guy, and a brilliant artist, too, but was eccentric, no question. Mm-hmm. Um, he, uh, <laughs> I, I do got a story about that, just to share how eccentric okay. he was. 
One day, okay. spirit, spirit, Mark walks in. He goes, hey, you guys, you want to hear a funny story? I just read about they were screening 2001 Space Odyssey in such a theater last night. And somebody got up and ran down the aisle and ran through the screen. You know, and the rest, of, and he's and the rest of the band is kind of shuffling in the feet and looking uh-huh. at the you know, because Randy was the guy no <laughs> on the way. island through the screen. Really? So yeah, so he was a colorful guy. So anyway, no one had told him uh, that Neil was coming up. So they get to a solo with a song, and Jay Ferguson nods to Neil to take solo. Mm. Well, it was normally Randy's solo. So Neil starts playing, and Randy starts playing too, and he moves a little, and he starts hip-bumping Neil off the stage. Mm-hmm. Just bobbing, mm-hmm. bump, bump, wow. bump. And, and the rest of the band is going, what the hell is going on yeah. here? And so after he totally bumps you off the stage, and Ted Bunnick is going, the, the band stops. And uh, Ed Cassidy, the drummer, was Randy's dad in real life. Oh, okay. So Ed gets up behind the drums and he walks off outside of the audience and he says a few words. We're over the wings. We saw all this happening. He says a few words. Come on, you guys. This is a show. You know, come on, Randy. Let, let yeah. Neil have his show. And you, you'll have plenty of uh, coffee down. And they both go back on it and explain the song like that. They drove. But Neil had this very curious expression. It's just like, what do I do with him? What do I do Okay, so there's, there's what went on stories. Oh, that's great. It was well, Rick, this was, uh, this was really fun. Thank you so much for talking to me. I love Firefall. I love your solo albums. I love everything you do. And I'm really glad that you took the time to talk to me. And I, and I just wanted to hear your stories and how you were doing and how you make your living and you're happy. I'm, just, I'm glad. Thank you for giving me your I time. I am. Well, my place. There you have it. Firefall with David and Rick. Hope you guys like that. I thought that was kind of cool. I gotta, I gotta find out how much it costs to have Rick come play my house. Can you imagine the guy who wrote and performed and sang those songs sitting in your living room, like on your couch, singing those songs? I gotta do that, and he's only like 45 minutes up the road. And I don't know about you, you can go to Firefall's website and see what their tour schedule is like if you, if you like them and you care. They're gonna be in Colorado a couple of times in the next few months. I'm definitely gonna make it out to see one of those shows. So thank you, David, and thank you, Rick. Now, next week, we're talking to another big titan band of the 70s soft rock sound. You know the hits. You know the album cover. I'm just going to leave it at that. little teaser. The guy that we talk to next week has a very unique story. Went on to do something very interesting after music. So I hope you'll come back next week and hear that. And thank you again to Andy for sending me the request. As I've said before, guys, I keep a list. I keep a list of the people that I want to look out for and get on this show. And I haven't gotten to all of them. There's hundreds on this list. So when you send me requests and those people appear on my list, it just bumps them up, makes them more top of mind, a higher priority, because you're wanting them too. And that's what happened here. So thank you, Andy, for requesting Firefall. And keep the requests coming, guys. I do the best I can. I'm working on a few of them for everyone right now. The business, thank you, as always, to Yan the Man Makevich for putting everything together. He had a a vacation last week. He's back with us. Thank you, Yan, for everything you do. And, of course, as always, find us on Facebook and like our page. You can send us messages on there. You can find us on Twitter at The Hustle Pod. You can email me at thehustlepod at gmail.com. If you want to send me a request or anything else, please do that. And, as always, if you listen with any regularity and you have not given us a little uh, review in iTunes, please do that soon. Okay? It's very helpful. I would appreciate it, even if it's a bad one. All right. Thanks, everybody. We will see you next Tuesday.
Oh, oh.